Well, good afternoon, Soul Church. Uh, if we've not met before, my name is Paul Matthews. It's a delight to be back uh, preaching here. Um, if, you're, if you've been a Christian a long time, or a little bit of time, or you're not Christian at all, um, I really am looking forward to telling you more about Jesus this afternoon. Uh, I first actually wrote this sermon a while back when I was invited to preach at Hope Christian Centre, um, and they gave me a really difficult brief. They said, we want you to preach on the topic of Jesus uh, and start at Genesis and go through to the end, um, which was a disgusting, like it's a great thing to preach on, but man, it was hard. I ended up, um, today you are getting the version that is about, I gave it a two and a half thousand word haircut. So um, they, they really were in for the long haul uh, back then. And it was tough, I think, because in some ways you're always preaching about Jesus, uh, of course. But there's, there's so many different aspects of Christ's character you could look at. There's so many different passages that you could pair with other passages. Uh, but for them and for us today, I chose to preach on Jesus as the head-crushing victor over sin and over the devil. And I chose to preach that because I think now more than ever, Christians need hope and Christians need confidence in God. There are many things in life that actually make life difficult for us, but um, in light of the recent pandemic... Um, that really shook some of us up. I think the level of fear and anxiety in our culture was um, to be predicted, probably. The level of fear and anxiety in our churches, or even in ourselves, was maybe not to be predicted. Maybe that took us by surprise a little bit. Thankfully, I think the antidote to that fear and that anxiety, Soul Church, is actually to know Jesus and to love Jesus and so today as we do this really brief biblical theology, as we start at Genesis and we move through, as I preach, I'm really hoping that you see Jesus more clearly, you know Jesus more deeply, and that in the greater confidence and trust you have in him, uh, that would actually prevent fear and anxiety down the track. So to that end, uh, let me open in prayer. Father God, we are, we are grateful for Jesus. He is a mighty saviour. He is the King of kings. And I pray that now as I preach, your Holy Spirit would be working here, changing hearts, shaping lives, instilling great confidence and hope. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so as I begin, I want to take one idea and I want to lay it down as a base coat quickly. The idea that I want to lay down to start off with is that the whole Bible is about Jesus. That's, that's the big idea to start off with. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And that's why, as I said, it's a really difficult thing to preach on the topic of Jesus because there's so much you could pair with so much else. Because the whole Bible is about Jesus. We actually know that to be true because Jesus says so himself. Um, Jesus says so when he's talking with his uh, apostles on the road to Emmaus. You'll know this at the end of, near the end of Luke. Jesus is walking to the, on the road to Emmaus. His disciples don't know that it's him. Right? They, they haven't recognised him. And they're really upset because they thought Jesus would be the one to rescue them, maybe even get rid of the Romans, and yet he's dead. He's, he's buried. And so as they're walking along all sad, this is what Jesus says to them. He says to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here's the key. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what Jesus does here 
is he, is he starts at, right at the beginning of the Bible in the books of Moses and he interpreted all the scriptures, the whole lot of it, and in all of them he showed them the things concerning himself. Jesus does a walking, talking Bible study with his disciples showing how his death is the main theme. His death and resurrection is the main theme of the Old and New Testament, well, the Old Testament at that stage. So the whole Bible is about Jesus, and we actually know that because Jesus said it is. Now, it's really, under, it's really important to understand that about Jesus, that the whole Bible is about him, for this reason. If we don't read the whole Bible, then we don't understand the whole Jesus. Okay? If we don't read the whole Bible, we don't understand the whole Jesus. You might be, some of you may be familiar with the five solas. It's a, it's a summary of the Protestant faith. If you don't know what that is, I can talk about that afterwards. It's one of the, the big explanation was one of the things I cut out. Um, but the, the, the idea of sola scriptura, it's, it means scripture alone. Scripture alone should shape our theology. God's word alone should shape our understanding of God and his world. Not, not our gut feelings and intuition, not our lived experience. It's actually God's word that shapes everything. And I think most of us here would be in hearty agreement with the idea of sola scriptura. Um, but we actually need to go one step further forward than that, I think, soul church. Uh, we, need to, we need to affirm not just sola scriptura, but tota scriptura, all of scripture, the whole lot of it. Our understanding of Jesus has to come from the whole Bible. It's got to come from all of Scripture. If we don't read the whole Bible, we don't get the whole Jesus. So if our understanding of Jesus is based actually only on a few of our favourite red-letter passages, then our understanding will fall short, unfortunately, of what it could be. Uh, there was a really popular pastor actually back in, in uh, the States in 2018. Uh, it was bad. He, he said to his congregation, look, People don't want to hear about the Old Testament. You, you have to unhitch the Old Testament from your faith, he said. It's going to be a dead weight when you're trying to witness and share the gospel. You've got to unhitch it from your faith. And Sadly, I think the only thing he unhitched in that sermon was his brain because you can't unhitch the Old Testament because the Old Testament's all about Jesus. Okay? The Old Testament's all about Jesus. That's the idea we need to lay as a foundation. So today, as we, as we take... Uh, all of Scripture, we're going to examine three points in the redemptive timeline. We're going to start back in Genesis 3, which was our first reading. Then we're going to look at Christ on the cross. And then we're going to look at Christ on the throne in heaven. And as I said at the start, Soul Church, it's my hope today that as you walk out those doors at the end of the service, you have a greater hope and confidence in God and a greater understanding of Christ's victory over sin and the devil. So as I said, we're going to go back now to Genesis 3 and we're going to look specifically at verses 14 and 15. So, so to get us up to speed, Eve has been tempted by the devil. She wasn't to eat of one tree. Unfortunately, she was tempted and she ate from the tree, as many of you know. Now, uh, Adam was there the whole time. Adam did nothing. Adam was lazy. Adam stood there like a cardboard cutout and let the whole thing happen in front of him until he actually finally did spring to life and also ate the fruit, so he didn't do a very good job there. Um, because of that sin, a curse entered the world, and this is what we see here. Um, Genesis 3, this is the curse. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, curse to you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly, 
and you'll eat dust all the days of your life, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And this is the key. He will, the seed of the woman, he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, uh, some theologians have actually referred to this passage as a proto-evangelium, which is a Greek word. Proto, it means first. Evangelium means gospel, good news. All right? It's the proto-evangelium. It's the first gospel. And they recognize it as the first echo of the gospel in the pages of Scripture. So even here, even in, while God is cursing the world, as soon as mankind rebel, God is so gracious that he actually gives them the gospel in seed form. He gives them the gospel in seed form. And he does this by condemning the devil. Yes, Satan, he says, you've actually succeeded in bringing a curse on the world, which is what Satan wanted. And he says, Satan, you'll even be so successful as to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But he will crush your head. That's what he says to the devil. The seed of the woman will crush your head. Even right here at the epicentre of the very darkest moment in man's history, there's actually a sliver of gospel light shining through. And what is that gospel light that's shining through? Well, that, there's a head crusher coming. There's the promise of a victor right at the scene of the defeat. Now, as a, as a quick aside, it's worth pointing out, if you're reading along in your own translations, um, some of your translations might not talk about head crushing at all. It might have the word bruise in there. For what it's worth, I, I don't think that makes much difference, right? whether it says crush or bruise. Even if it says bruise, I think it's equally emphatic, equally victorious, even though it says bruise and not crush. So it says, the seed of the woman... Um, will be struck to the heel, and the serpent will be struck to the head. It's about where the strike is taking place. All right. So Christ, it says, will be struck in the heel, the serpent will be struck in the head. Now, we have some doctors here. I'm not a doctor by any stretch. I'm very limited. I forget everything I, I learnt in the first aid course. Um, don't, don't tell work. Um, however, I know enough to know that the heel is less important than the head. Okay, that's, that's about as far as my knowledge extends to. All right, if you have a heel injury, that's a frustration. If you have a head injury, that's a pretty big deal. Okay, if, if you get your ankle amputated, you're in trouble. But not that much trouble, you get a crutch. If you get your head amputated, however, there's, there's no amount of crutches uh, that, that are going to help you. you are, you've cooked your goose uh, at that point. So we see here... The seed of the woman will have the heel bruised, but the serpent will have his head crushed. Now that, so that's, that's Genesis 3. We're going to now take our second step uh, to Christ on the cross. And we're going to look at Jesus on the cross specifically through the lens of the curse in Genesis 3. So remember, again, um, that curse to the serpent was the proto-gospel, the first gospel, that the seed of the woman would have his heel bruised but he would crush the serpent's head. And it's interesting, Soul Church, because that, that image of bruising and crushing is actually precisely what we see at the cross of Christ. See, on the cross, as many of you know, on the cross, we see God the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. 
He's hung up and he's crucified like a criminal, isn't he? And of course, you can understand, the disciples around him saw this as a huge defeat. This is, this is the end of their movement. They had hoped that Jesus would actually be the one that would liberate Israel, as I said, get rid of the Romans. And the prospects for that aren't looking so good as he's gasping for breath on the cross. And that's exactly what the disciples were saying in that first passage we looked at in the road to Emmaus. They're sad. They're upset. Their saviour, who was going to liberate them, is actually dead. He died. But this crucifixion, that's the bruising of the heel that was actually foretold millennia ago. But part of God's master plan, Soul Church, was that that bruising of the heel and the crushing of the head of the serpent, it would actually take place in the same event, wouldn't it? So the cross is actually somewhat of a contradiction. I don't know if you've thought about that. Right as the nails were being driven into the Messiah's hands, the Messiah's boot was actually honing in on the head of the serpent. And I'll show you one of my favourite passages about the cross. It comes from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15. And we had this read earlier too. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, this passage is great. On one level, it speaks of a great personal salvation, doesn't it? Jesus died so that all who believe in him would have our trespasses forgiven. We'd have our record of debt cancelled and we'd be made alive by God. And that's good news for every human being out there. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. But note that the Paul here, he actually he doesn't limit what happened on the cross to a, a personal, spiritual thing, does he? Because the gospel isn't just personal. The gospel, what happened on the cross, it's cosmic. At the cross, the rulers and the authorities, that's, that means Satan and his allies, the rulers and the authorities, they were put to open shame. They weren't just defeated. They were actually humiliated, weren't they? All the enemies in the spiritual war that you and I are fighting every single day, all those enemies were disarmed. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He disarmed them. He took away their weapons. They were shamed at the cross. The serpent's head was crushed at the cross. So this is something we need to understand in our thinking. The defeat of Satan, the defeat of the devil and his dark spiritual forces, that's not something we have to look forward to in the future. That's not eschatological. That's actually historical. That's actually happened. They have been disarmed. So when we, when we engage in our spiritual warfare, we need to do it with every confidence, Soul Church, every confidence. Some people like to use the term spiritual warfare as sort of a synonym for just being more anxious about the devil, being a little bit more scared about demons. All right? but that, that shouldn't be how it is. The more you focus on spiritual warfare, the more victorious you should feel because you have, the, you have the shield of faith, right? You have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You've got all your heavenly armour, and your opponent has been disarmed. 
Right? They have nothing. And you have everything. We are fighting a war, but we should not think about this as hand-to-hand -hand combat. We should actually think about this as boot-to-head combat. So the serpent's head has been crushed, right? That's not a, that's not a future hope. That's actually a, a historical event. And the cross stands in history as a concrete marker of Christ's victory. Our enemies have been shamed. Our spiritual enemies have been shamed. While we have been given, as I said, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, all the spiritual armour. Saying this is not triumphalistic. All right? It's just actual, genuine triumph. It's genuine triumph, which is what we have if we are in Christ. That brings us to our, our last stop now on the biblical theology. Christ on the throne. We've looked back at the curse. We've looked at Christ on the cross. Now we're going to look at Christ on the throne. It would be a big mistake, friends, to end our biblical theology at the cross because Jesus isn't on the cross, is he? The good news of the gospel is actually that when Jesus died on the cross, he came alive three days later. And he spent some time on earth and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's what it says in the Creed. He's ascended to the right hand of God. Now, all of us Christians here know that Christ is on the throne. Right? We all know that. But I wonder if we have the same idea of what his reign on the throne is going to look like. To show you what I think the scriptures tells us that reign is going to look like, I want to take you to two passages quickly. The first one is Psalm 110. Right? For the sake of time, we'll just look at the first verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the Lord, the first capital letter Lord, uh, is Yahweh. It's God. Right? This is King David writing this. And he's saying, God, Yahweh, says to my Lord, which we understand to be Jesus, so God says to Jesus, come and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Remember? And, and when Jesus left the earth, he went up and sort of obeyed this. He came and sat at God's right hand. All right? God's calling him up to the heavenly throne until when? Until Jesus' enemies are made a footstool. See, the, the reign of Jesus, he's, he's reigning in heaven, but his rule doesn't only extend to heaven, does it? His rule extends to earth. And he will make all his enemies, including, including his enemies on earth, a footstool. That's God's Psalm 110 plan. Right? That's the Psalm 110 plan. Make all of Jesus' enemies a footstool for his feet. The same feet that crushed the head of the serpent will rest on a stool made out of his enemies. We see that, although that's in the Old Testament, we see that exact same idea echoed in the New Testament as well, don't we? When we uh, I'll take you to the second passage here, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25. Again, we'll look at this briefly. Then comes the end, it's the, the, the end of time, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and when will Jesus deliver the kingdom to God the Father? After destroying every rule and authority. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Now, of course, you could draw a lot out of that passage. That's a very provocative passage. But what I want to point out here, Soul Church, is that Jesus will reign. He'll reign on the throne above at the right hand of God the Father. When? When will he come back? 
Well, he won't come back until when? Until he's put his enemies under his feet. That's the exact same language as Psalm 110. Exact same language, isn't it? So Christ is on the throne right now, and what is his reign going to look like? What's he going to be doing up there? Well, he's going to be putting all his enemies under his feet. We remember back in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, all authority in heaven and on earth. And Jesus is going to use all the authority, all the authority that he has, to bring his enemies under his feet. So the decisive blow was struck on the cross, and that same victory that was struck on the cross, well, that's going to be worked out in the world through history. And some of you might say, yes, of course, uh, he'll put his enemies under his feet. That's just going to happen in the last few moments of history, though. Right? So things are, things are going to be not going so well, something will happen, and Jesus will put all his enemies under his feet suddenly. That's a reasonably common idea, and I think a reasonably common mistake. I think the issue with it, the mistake there, is that it really doesn't match up with the way Jesus said his kingdom would grow, does it? Jesus didn't say his kingdom would be like a falling stock market down and down and down and down until suddenly someone hits it and it goes straight back up again. Jesus actually said his kingdom would start like the smaller seed and grow into the biggest tree. That's how Jesus said his kingdom would grow. He said his kingdom would start like a little bit of leaven and it would work its way through the whole loaf. Slowly, slowly, little bit by little bit, small seed into big tree. That's how Jesus will be putting his enemies under his feet. Slowly, slowly, growing throughout the world. We don't know the day or the hour Christ will return, of course. We don't, we don't know when that will happen. But we do know that he will stay in heaven. He'll reign on that heavenly throne until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So what do we get from this? So Jesus stays in heaven until his earthly enemies are made a footstool. That's what we should expect. We shouldn't, as Christians, I'm convinced, we shouldn't believe things are going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus choppers in and airlifts us out because, again, that's just not how his kingdom will grow. Right? Jesus didn't say his kingdom would do that. So we've looked at Genesis 3, the curse. We've looked at Christ on the cross and we've looked at Christ on the throne. Uh, let me close with some brief application points. Now you remember at the beginning, Sol, I said I wanted to draw out this aspect of Christ's character. Christ is the head-crushing victor over the devil and over sin because I thought it was a powerful antidote to fear and anxiety. Uh, and particularly, as I said, in the height of the pandemic, many of us were tempted to give way to fear and anxiety. We look back and really clearly now we can read the tea leaves, we can understand, we saw that as case numbers rose, mental health declined nearly everywhere, nearly everywhere in every population. And the pandemic was, was very scary, wasn't it? We had very little information. Many of us were fearing for the worst, and rightly so in some ways. If you're reading on the news or listening that there could be bodies in the street by the end of the week, you're going to get worked up. I got worked up, of course. And even though, thankfully, by God's grace, most of the measures are being rolled back now, uh, you know how quickly it happened, right? It could happen again just as quickly, if not more quickly. We could be back there next week. We don't know. 
Many of us were scared to death during the height of the pandemic, either for our, ourselves or for our loved ones. Let's remember the words of Christ. What did Christ say in Matthew chapter 6? He said, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? And of course, we can't by being anxious add a single hour to the span of anyone else's life either. So my exhortation to you, Soul Church, when you're tempted to worry, remember that Jesus, the same Jesus that loves you, the same Jesus that died for you, remember that Jesus is actually on the throne right now. There's no virus, there's no person more powerful than the king. Right? When we're tempted to give way to fear, remember that Christ is on the throne. That's actually our backbone. That's our spine when we're tempted to fear. That's our courage. Jesus is in control. Because, of course, one of the most terrifying things about the pandemic was that we felt out of control. We felt like our government lost control. We had no control. But as Christians, we know nothing is ever out of control. Now, it goes without saying, a quick caveat. Of course, just because Jesus is in control, of course we still do our due diligence in a pandemic. I think that should go without saying. But just because Jesus is in control doesn't mean we go and lick handrails in a hot spot and just hope for the best. Uh, in the, in the, we, we take all the appropriate measures, of course. We take all the appropriate measures. But once we've taken the appropriate measures... We don't fear. Even if we're not in control, even if our government has lost control, Christ is still in control. He's still in the, on the throne. And that truth, I think, as a second application point, that, that truth that Jesus is the victor over sin and death, that he's in control, that he's on the throne, that should shape how we face sin more broadly, face suffering more broadly. Many of you have heard that we should take things to the cross. Right? Take things to the cross of Jesus. If you're, if you're suffering, if you're anxious, if you're depressed, take it to the cross. You may have heard that advice. That's a good thing to do, I guess. At, at the cross, we see the seriousness of our own sin. Uh, at the cross, we see God's wrath for anger. At the cross, we see actually God's love for mankind and love for the world. It's always going to be good to think about the cross for the Christian, of course. But my only encouragement to you, Christian is that as you meditate on the cross, just remember that Jesus isn't there. Jesus isn't there. Jesus isn't on the cross. Jesus is actually on the throne. So you can take your burdens to the cross, of course, but friends, take them to the throne. Actually, because of what happened on the cross, we can approach the throne with boldness, the writer to the Hebrews says. So take your grief, your struggles, before the throne of the risen, victorious all-conquering, head-crushing king. Let me make a last application point here to the, to the Lord's Prayer. I love the Lord's Prayer. You, Soul Church, you know that I love the Lord's Prayer. Um, I think I, I'm going to leave that there. I love the Lord's Prayer. Um, some of you may be struggling with what I've said today. Right? It, it might not line up with how you think of the world at all. Right? That idea that in history, on earth, Christ is subduing his enemies. The, the idea that the kingdom of Christ will, will actually grow and grow and grow and not shrink and shrink and shrink and that the earth will be filled with less of God's enemies and more of his people, that might be a brand new idea to you. Uh, you actually might not agree with that idea at all. Let me be a little bit cheeky here, Soul Church, and say that uh, I think you should believe it because you're already praying for it. 
Christians all around the world for thousands of years have prayed the Lord's Prayer every day. This is an ancient Christian practice. It's how Jesus taught us to pray. However, some of us can forget the significance of the words we're praying, unfortunately. Let's have a look at the second and third petition or the second and third thing that we ask from God in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9 and 10. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So all of us, all of us, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying that God's kingdom would come in greater and greater measure, aren't we? We're praying that God's will would be done in greater and greater measure. Again, to, to be a little bit cheeky, soul church, I'd ask, does it actually make any sense at all to believe and act as if God's kingdom will be shrinking when you're every day praying for it to grow? Does it actually make any sense to believe God's will will be increasingly rejected when every day you're praying for it to be increasingly followed? We're actually praying for a radical thing, aren't we? When we ask for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, let me ask you this, soul church, to what degree do you think God's will is being done in heaven? It almost sounds like a silly question. Of course it's being done all the time by every creature. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're praying for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. One clear point of application for you today is to pray the Lord's Prayer regularly and then actually expectantly hope for God to answer that prayer. So to wrap up, brothers and sisters, we've, we've looked at the text of Genesis 3 and we've seen how that sort of runs through the whole of Scripture. The, the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he will crush the serpent's head. We move to the New Testament. We looked at the cross and how that Genesis 3 promise was fulfilled there. And then we look to the throne of heaven and how the same feet that crushed the serpent will be resting on a footstool made out of Christ's enemies. At the start of my sermon, I said it was my hope that as you walk out those doors, that you'll have a clearer and more joyful understanding of the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and the devil, that you would have more hope and more confidence, and you would have less fear and anxiety. I sincerely hope that has been the case. Let me close in prayer. Almighty God, we are grateful. We're grateful for Christ. He is a magnificent saviour. He is a wise and powerful ruler. And I pray that uh, whether we've been Christians uh, for a long time or a little, or whether we haven't become a Christian yet, but we soon will, I pray that you will uh, let us know more of Christ's character. I pray that we would trust Christ. I pray that that trust would be the sort of trust that uh, makes fears fly away. Uh, and we, we thank you uh, for, for giving Christ the heavenly throne. We thank you uh, and we pray that we would be able to see, even in our lifetimes, his enemies uh, made a footstool for his feet. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.